Welcome to the 439th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology, and I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome disaster sociologist and author of Disasters, Sociological Aspects, Kathleen Tierney, back to COVID Calls. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch, and you can always watch live on Twitter. You can hear COVID Calls recorded anytime as a podcast on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. But please don't wait too long. We'll be wrapping up the regular COVID calls, regularly scheduled COVID calls on March 16th. As of March 1st, 2022, the United States reports 950,521 deaths to COVID-19. The nation of Ukraine reports 112,459 deaths, but the country has stopped reporting COVID information. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Luis Sepulveda, Chilean writer exiled by Pinochet, dies at 70. This was written by Rafael Minder and appeared April 20th, 2020 in the New York Times. Stateline Madrid, Luis Sepulveda, a Chilean writer whose stay among indigenous people in the Amazon led to his most celebrated novel and who was jailed during the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. On April 16, 2020, in Oviedo, Spain, he was 70. The cause was the novel coronavirus, according to Tusquets, his publishing house in Barcelona. Mr. Sepulveda, who was hospitalized in February of 2020, was among the first wave of people in Spain to be diagnosed with the coronavirus. Sepulveda published several novels, children's stories, and travel books. And he also wrote and directed films. He acquired fame with his novel, The Old Man Who Read Love Stories, which appeared in 1988, which tells the story of a man who, together with his wife, leaves his mountain village to take part in the colonization of the Amazon. The book was inspired by Mr. Sepulveda's stay in the 1970s with the region's Shuar indigenous people. A review in the New York Times by David Unger compared it to one of the early works of Gabriel Garcia Marquez. In its simple language and philosophical underpinnings, it is magical, thanks to the author's skill at describing jungle life, Mr. Unger wrote. Mr. Sepulveda wrote the screenplay for a 2001 movie version starring Richard Dreyfus. Mr. Sepulveda was born on October 14, 1949, in Oval, a small city in central Chile. His father owned a restaurant and was a communist militant. His mother, who was of Mapuche indigenous descent, worked as a nurse. As a teenager, he joined the communist youth and then studied theater at the University of Chile. After General Pinochet staged a coup and took charge of Chile in 1973, Mr. Sepulveda was among a large number of left-wing intellectuals and political activists jailed by the regime. His prison sentence was eventually turned into house arrest. He fled 
and went underground, but was recaptured and sentenced again, this time to 28 years in prison. With support from Amnesty International, his sentence was eventually changed to exile, and he spent some time in the Amazon. In the late 1970s, Mr. Sepulveda moved around Latin America, including Nicaragua, where he joined a leftist militant group. He lived for a time in Germany, where he worked for Greenpeace, serving on one of its ships. In 1997, he settled in Spain's northern region of Asturias, where he renewed his relationship with Carmen Yanez, a poet whom he had married in Chile before the coup. Yanez had been detained and tortured by Pinochet's police, but she eventually was granted political asylum in Sweden, where she lived until she rejoined Mr. Sepulveda in Spain. She and five children, Carlos, Paulina, Max, Leon, and Sebastian, survive him. obituary of Luis Sepulveda, who died in April of 2020, COVID-19. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation, and I'm really excited to bring Kathleen Tierney back to COVID calls, and let me introduce her to you. Kathleen Tierney is Professor Emerita in the Department of Sociology and Research Professor in the Institute of Behavioral Science at the University of Colorado Boulder. From 2003 to 2017, she was the director of the university's Natural Hazard Center. She was lead author with co-authors Michael Lindell and Ronald Perry of Facing the Unexpected, Disaster Preparedness and Response in the United States, which appeared in 2001. She was also co-editor with Bill Waugh of Emergency Management, Principles and Practice for Local Governments, which appeared in 2007. She's also author of The Social Roots of Risk, which appeared in 2014, and most recently, Disasters, Sociological Aspects, which was published in 2019, among many, many other important publications in the field of disaster sociology. She has received recognition for her contribution to the study of hazards and disasters, including the Fred Patel Award for Distinguished Contributions from the Environment and Society section of the American Sociological Association, the Charles Fritz Award from the International Sociological Association's International Research Committee on Disasters. She has served as a board member and vice president of the Earthquake Engineering Research Institute and has been named an honorary a lifetime EERI member, one of only two sociologists to receive that honor. Kathleen Tierney, it's great to see you again. Welcome back to COVID Calls. It's good to be back, and thanks for having me back, Scott. Let me start the way I often do, just find out where you're calling from and get an update from you on what the pandemic situation looks like there. Um, I'm coming to you from uh, my home in Boulder, Colorado, from my dining room. And things seem to be turning up quite a bit in Colorado, in my part of the world. Um, cases are down. Deaths are down, hospitalizations are down. Um, many counties in Colorado, including my own, um, have lifted their mask restrictions and requirements. My county, Boulder County, um, just did that a few days ago. So I think everyone is breathing a sigh of relief at this point, looking forward to spring and hoping that some weird variant doesn't come along to spoil everything. And we've been through that. 
Yeah, I've, actually, several guests I've spoken to from the United States in the last two weeks have expressed what you just said, a sort of like sense of relief, but also a strong memory of that turn to Delta and Omicron. I guess that's normal in disaster. People carry with them hesitation of previous disaster. It maybe has some limitation on the way they view the future. I think so. I, I really do. I think that that People learned a lesson last summer and going into fall when they thought that everything was going to go back to normal. And then all of a sudden, here comes Delta and here comes Omicron to infect everybody who either has been infected before or hasn't been infected before, regardless of their vaccination status. You were a guest, one of the first guests on COVID calls, and I really appreciate that. And it was April that terrible April of 2020, you were on April 21st, 2020. And at that time, I just went back and looked before we got on, um, there were 43,796 deaths reported in the United States. We've traveled a great distance since that time. I, I wanted to ask you if you have a memory of this period, Kathleen, you know, something that really sticks for you, association of the pandemic? I know it's hard to choose one, but is there something that really stands in for this time for you? Well, I happened to be in Japan for the last two weeks of January um, of 2020. That was the last international trip I've taken. And, um, you know, when I got to Japan in the middle of January, there was a growing awareness that something had gone very badly wrong in China. And at the beginning of my trip, there were a few people who were wearing masks. And by the time I left, for example, at the hotel where I was staying near Tokyo Station, all the staff were wearing masks. And then on the plane, people were wearing masks. But I think at that time, it I understood what was going on, but even I, you know, as someone who should know, um, didn't really understand what was coming. And it only gradually dawned on us. And I think it was the middle of March here um, in Colorado where our lockdowns began. And that was when I think the realization started to sink in that life wasn't going to be normal going forward. Never did I envision, though, how long a struggle this was going to be. That that early period, of, thank you for sharing that memory. And, um, I, you know, there's something sort of cinematic about it. I, I, it's hard to make sense of that early period in retrospect, because it was small pieces and clues. And as you said, you're keeping track of information. You're around people who are fastidious about health. But it doesn't come all at at one realization, does it? No, it doesn't. And in the middle of March, um, I had plans to meet a friend at a bar um, to celebrate St. Patrick's Day, which is I think a bigger deal in the United States than it probably is anywhere else in the world. And uh, that was March 17th. 
And on March 16th came the shutdown. Um, and I think I think they did that in advance of St. Patrick's Day just to avoid <laughs> yeah. the spread. But all of a sudden it was everything's closing and we can't go out. I wanted to ask you about numbers. I've been asking experts how they feel about numbers, not only the COVID numbers, which I think we could say probably is an undercount, although I'm not an, an expert in mortality counting, but you know, the numbers are used um, in the sort of diagnostic way, I guess, in a still in an emergency management way, how to surge materials in various places, but also as kind of a yardstick of of how different countries have traveled over over time. As a disaster researcher, when you see these kind of mortality statistics, what do they mean to you? Do, do they help you understand the scale of, a, of an event or are they are they problematic for you? I just want to sort of get your sense of how you think about disaster numbers. Well, I, I think of disaster numbers as social constructs. Hmm. Um, you know, we never really know how many people died in different disasters. Um, there are just so many social factors that influence uh, how fatalities, casualties, and secondary impacts are counted. I think that also with respect to COVID in many places, there are disinformation campaigns. Uh, for example, one of the talking points in one of the disinformation campaigns is that, you know, People in the medical and healthcare uh, system are counting anybody who died of anything as a COVID fatality. On the other hand, Scott, as you suggested, there may be serious undercounts as well. I think it's going to be a long time um, before a lot of this gets sorted, if it ever does. And particularly with respect to secondary impacts like long COVID, or some of the syndromes that result, uh, whether those affect the heart, the brain, um, other parts of the physical system, it's going to be a long time before we really understand a lot of those kinds of impacts. Then you have impacts like anxiety, depression, suicide, substance abuse. How much of that can be attributed to COVID? How much of that can be attributed to other causes? This this is going to be a major topic for epidemiological research going forward, I think. From a policy perspective, you know, based on your your research and experience, do the do the numbers are there various thresholds that somehow keep a disaster in front of I'm talking about the United States here, that keep them in the forefront of a policymaker's mind, I guess by extension in the in the public's mind, or are numbers unreliable in that in that sense that they don't we can't say that there's a, a certain threshold of a number of loss at which the public will remain interested in policy reform? I think the extent to which the public remains interested in policy reform doesn't have so much to do with the numbers as it does with 
what stakeholder groups are involved in trying to keep that on the public agenda, those issues on the agenda. I don't think it has so much to do with numbers as it does with um, policy entrepreneurship and champions. I think, you know, if you if you asked people now how many people were killed in the 9-11 terrorist attacks, how much um, subsequent mortality and morbidity resulted from those attacks, members of the general public would only have just a vague notion of those numbers. Mm. It's interesting to think about how and when they were doing um, the, I don't know if you saw the memorial around September 11 with the flags. Suzanne Furstenberg did this memorial with the flags and she said somebody came by and she had them in groups and I'm going to forget the number now, but I think it's in groupings of 5,000 in these where, so they mm-hmm. organized such that people could go and, and participate if they wanted to and place one. And, and um, she, somebody came by and, and said, Oh, is this, is this a nine 11 memorial? And she, she had to stop and say, well, actually, no, September 11 would just be this small amount over here. A tiny, tiny little corner, a blip. Uh, and kind of, again, speaking to your point that it's, it, I think, especially with some distance and in comparison disasters, people do lose sense of scale. I think they really do. And again, a lot of it has to do with policy agenda setting and whether whether there are people with access to levers of power who keep it on the front burner. And again, I wonder what will happen in the case of COVID. Will almost a million deaths um, motivate us to prepare better for pandemics? Or will it just be another statistic? I thought it was fascinating, Scott, that you mentioned earlier that over 112,000 people have died in um, in Ukraine of COVID, or that's the estimate. And thinking of that number in a population of 40 million, it's pretty staggering. Yeah, they had a rough time of it. It hasn't been, it wasn't much covered in Western news, but there was a wave of stories from November. It it's quite interesting to raise raised it. I mean, um, it, there were stories from November of 2021 that were quite similar to stories that we got from New York City in April of 2020. Crematoria were full, complete overwhelm medical system. Um, and at that time, interestingly, Russia was going through something similar. Right. And so the reporting was finding some sympathy in that sense that the two countries, neighbors, were having, as they would, a a sort of similar moment in the pandemic. And now the news coverage, well, I I can't find much news coverage of COVID in Ukraine, but uh, the coverage treats that border as if it's a real thing. But as we found with this pandemic, uh, this pandemic doesn't pay any attention to borders. 
such a terrible situation. Heartbreaking. I had the benefit early in the pandemic of asking you questions as the disaster was unfolding. And it really, I mean, that's why I called this project COVID calls from the beginning, because it literally, you know, emerged from the kind of thing I would do in a disaster going back my whole career is to call experts like yourself who are willing to give me a little time and explain what's going on. And at that time I asked you, how you evaluated the United States emergency management response. And you didn't hold back. Uh, you said it was a total failure, unlike anything you had seen. I'm paraphrasing here, but unlike anything you'd seen in your in your career. That's really saying something for someone who's studied emergency management, preparedness and response um, seriously in the way that you have over your career. Now, with a couple of years gone by, I'd like to get an update from you on what what you think about both at the sort of national level, but also at the state level, what you've seen. Yes, um, I think that I think that the response is a reflection of the fact that um, that all of the pandemic planning that had taken place and all of the efforts that had been made to try to prepare for a pandemic like COVID. Um, a, there wasn't a general awareness of pandemic planning in the country, but B, that planning so massively failed to envision what was actually going to be happening. Um, that it's kind of mind-boggling. I think that the, I think that the preparedness activities around pandemic were very much siloed in the public health system. And thinking about public health um, and medical services and not understanding at all the, the knock-on or the follow-up economic effects, social effects, um, and probably grossly underestimating the impacts that something like this would have on vulnerable populations. Now, in, in public health research and healthcare research in general, and in fields like mine, sociology, you know, there's a strong tradition of trying to understand the social determinants of health. Mm. I mean, that's, you know, disparities in health, access to healthcare services, disparities in outcomes and all that. Th those are fundamental concerns um, in those research fields. Mm. But policy and practice, I don't think, 
had caught up in any way with what the research community at large understood about the kinds of things that could happen. And um, for all its good work, I think an agency like CDC, which is an expert, expert agency in terms of, you know, epidemiological surveillance, in terms of things like risk communication, all that knowledge um, was inadequate in terms of the challenges that were presenting themselves. Um, that, for example, you know, pandemics do tend to be politicized, hmm. but the extent to which the pandemic caused a variety of kinds of political polarization. Um, the fact that there were disinformation campaigns that were trying to divide our society. Um, the fact that it seemed to be absolutely impossible to communicate to the public that, hey, we have this thing going on that's novel. It was called the novel coronavirus. Right. It's novel. We're learning on the fly. Stuff is emerging. You know, what we say today might not be the same thing that we say tomorrow. Somehow, it just all fell flat. It was one of the most discouraging, I think, times in the whole area of risk communication. You know, we're supposed to know how to communicate with the public. But within the context, the overly politicized context, and a context where there were active efforts at dis disinformation and the spreading of rumors, and the implications of social media platforms, not well understood at all. I think we're just beginning to get into it. Does that make any sense? I'm just- It does, no. No, there's so, and I wanna just, you've laid out a whole research agenda there as usual. I wanna pick up a few different pieces of it. Um, let me start with the preparedness and vulnerability part. As you said in the research, this is not new, and, no, and not across across medical, epidemiological, social science fields, and even in natural phys physical sciences already, sort of concepts of disaster vulnerability in civil engineering, for example, not new concepts. But somehow, in the U.S. response, and not only the U.S., um, specific populations like people in elder care facilities. Uh, uh, African Americans and other uh, minorities who are living in communities with underserved health resources. But the early in the pandemic, I mean, April, May, June of 2020, it was obvious that there were disparities in case rates and ultimately in, in mortality rates. So, I mean, I guess my sort of basic question there is, is why hadn't the practice caught up with the research, because it speaks to something a little more existential about the way that research influences practice. And we've been puzzling over this for a long time. We all know it's not linear. Uh, you don't publish a study right. 
And then the senator says, this is the way it goes, and now this is the way we wish it was that way. But even despite a lack of linearity, you would think things like rules for, um, for procedures in nursing homes, to, to give one case, would have been more robust when it's obvious these are people who have vulnerabilities to a pandemic. So I guess my question is almost a, it's an existential kind of question. Like, why hasn't the research moved more effectively at this particular moment when we needed it into practice? Well, I think I think one thing is has to do with the stripping of the public health system, uh, underfunding of those kinds of institutions that could potentially have a big impact at the local community level. Just simply the lack the lack of, of funding. And I think secondly, um, and relatedly, has to do with the extent to which there was not sufficient outreach and engagement with vulnerable communities. And an epidemic is not the time to try to start that, just like you don't try to start basic relationships at the community level in the middle of a disaster. That should already have been done. Um, there is also an issue of trust in institutions. And I just came across just yesterday mention of a study, which I wasn't able to make note of at the time, having to do with trust in government and the way that that vaccination rates and also infection rates and you know mortality and morbidity rates were related to rates of trust in government mm -hmm. and i think here in the us you know we're at the end of a 30 to 40 year project of trying to frame or trying to influence members of the public to believe that government can't really do anything. Right. It doesn't really do anything that's important. Government should be as small as possible, right? So we don't have big, robust public health systems. We don't have big government programs dealing with things like pandemic preparedness or risk communication. Um, and, you know, as you sow, so shall you reap. Yeah. Just, you know, I'm thinking about that even in, in the most, most basic kinds of functions for emergency management, like surging materials to a place. And you remember these debates we're having about the use of the Defense Production Act in the spring of 2020? Yes. At, and intermittently, it has come back because people in the United States have been surprised. And in India, with the oxygen availability, you know, in countries with advanced economies and all the scientific research capacity in the world, we can't get ventilators here. We can't get masks. There was a sort of collective cultural uh, head shaking around the impossibility of that idea. Do you tie that to this observation you made about this 40-year devaluation of public capacity? I do. 
I do. Um, and I think also a lack of understanding about how processes like globalization would be affecting our readiness. Hey, what do you know? We, we don't make masks. They make them in China. Right. And then, you know, let's not for, let's not forget, you know, the leadership context of what was going on in 2020, where, um, the president had people around him, including his son-in-law, who knew nothing of the operations of government or of supply chains for, um, critical equipment in the context of a pandemic and yet took charge of it. Mm-hmm. All these promises that were made. And uh I mean it's just it's just insane. It's like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. <laughs> you know, just and just maximum arrogance. You know. <laughs> just to follow up on that part, the it's not the first time we've seen uh, incompetence and disaster management at the no. federal level in the United States. But, I, and I want to, I don't like to spend a lot of time with Trump, but I did want to ask you about this because is it something unique in your observation about the way he managed, spoke about who he was? I mean, to follow just his own trajectory of the pandemic, so confusing utterly confusing to me. I mean, some parts of it, you would say, okay, that's what the Donald Trump will do in this situation. But he also pushed for the vaccine very hard. Mm-hmm. And, and then he got COVID and, and then recovered. Very. I mean, there's so many odd moments in that. And I, I guess I my question at the core of that is how much should we place analytically on the trajectory of one leader in a pandemic, even if it's the president of the United States, because I worry that a lot of the failures will just be chalked up to that was the Trump era thing. And it was just we that's how we were at that time. And, and as an excuse for other problems that might be a little bit more structural. So I don't know how you come down on on, I guess, the, the importance of Trump in all this. Well, I think you've put your finger on it there, Scott, that there is the background or the context of weakened you know, governmental institutions um, that, you know, took a long time to develop. And then situational factors like Trump and the people that he had around him. With the best leadership that we could possibly envision, that was not going to overcome those structural or systemic failures. Nor was it going to, you know, the best leadership that we could ever envision. It's not going to eliminate great disparities in um, things like income, social vulnerability, poverty, et cetera. And also couldn't overcome the fact that the people that there were classes of people in U.S. society who could work and function pretty well, you know, remotely. Mm. People like us. Right. And people who had to go to work in public facing jobs 
where they were put at greater risk. So you have the intersection of the occupational disparities, the gender disparities, the racial and ethnic disparities um, that even the best leadership could not overcome. However, that said, you know, we had a president who commandeered press conferences for weeks and weeks where he could talk about things like injecting bleach. Yeah. Um, just really goofy stuff, but stuff that also played into the grifter mentality of a lot of people, right? Who saw the chance to make a buck yeah, on, sure. you know, on promoting ivermectin and bleach and, you know, whatever. He enabled that. So, you know, at the very least, we would like to see leaders that in the context, you know, the broader socioeconomic context, don't make things worse. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I and let me let me connect that to your observation earlier about the problem of risk communication in COVID. And certainly it's hard, um, even in the best of circumstances, but you pointed out a couple of key things. One is um, maybe a poor understanding of the role of social media, the role of disinformation. Uh, and, and you just put your finger on maybe something that the research hadn't captured. I don't know it as well as I should, but the idea that you would have a... Um, Incompetent, let's go with that. Incompetent at at the head of the government who would be every day taking a national TV platform to spread misinformation and disinformation. He did both. Um, yeah, I just I think... wanted to come back to you on this because this it seems like, you know, uh, the communication models, the risk communication models didn't account for that. No, it did not. They did not. Um, they could not have envisioned the kind of situation that developed in 2020. No way. Um, and I think that, was I going to say, that one of the sort of cardinal rules that emergency managers try to follow is that in the middle of a crisis, can we keep the politicians separate? from the folks that are making right. the strategic, tactical, and operational decisions. Mm. Let's try to keep them out of the limelight where they might say something, do something right. <laughs> that runs runs contrary to what emergency managers, the goals they're trying to pursue. Well, look at what happened, <laughs> you know? That's fascinating because not only did Trump take that opportunity, but a lot of governors did, too. They and, certainly did. And not only Republicans. I mean, you know, the governor of New York and then the governor of Florida, oh. governor of Texas, these re these press conferences, which turned into like daily fireside chats. And I wonder, how do you feel? Do you have some ambiguous, ambivalent feelings about that? I mean, I kind of do because people tuned in for those and maybe they gave some sense of hope. But then the governor of New York published a book early in the pandemic saying what a great job his administration had done. And then we find out not so much. Oh, I, I'm glad you said he published a book and didn't say he wrote a book <laughs> because that was left to others. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a five, five million dollar advance on the book about how great we were. Yeah. yeah. 
that that sort of thing again erodes public trust hmm. um, and just fuels those who who again want to delegitimize government delegitimize leadership let me just take a moment to remind folks I got so into the conversation, I forgot to do what I should be doing to remind people that you're listening to COVID calls. And I'm talking today to disaster sociologist Kathleen Tierney. And we've been going back through and I've been going the things I asked you about two years ago. And, and you were sort of giving your vantage point at that time. And it's interesting to return to them. Your perspective hasn't changed much about the the scale and scope of the failure and the connection to uh, a history that predates it and a long-term process. And I think those are, again, really useful um, observations that are hard to get through to people, but really important because the disaster feels so urgent. It feels so special and consequential in our time, and it is, that, that sometimes that militates against looking back even to relatively recent history. But I, I wanted to I wanted to do that with you and, and ask you now what you think about COVID in the context of Hurricane Katrina and and how you might see the two in in some ways because what I'm curious about is how we can think about this as a period of time where certain kinds of disasters emerge and responses might be kind of similar. Well in Katrina, as in, you know, some other major disasters that the U.S. experienced, vulnerability, social vulnerability came out very, very clearly. Who, who was able to evacuate, who lived and who died, who was able to return back home, and who wasn't. Um, with Katrina, you had this idea that, you know, a catastrophic disaster can result in very significant demographic changes. Um, I think Katrina also showed what happens when the intergovernmental system is not up to the challenge of dealing with a catastrophic disaster. So federal, state, local government relations were very fraught at that time. We see see the same thing in COVID. We see a real serious recognition of the fact that vulnerability matters. Um, that the experience of a disaster or, or pandemic is very different if you're an upper middle class white person as opposed to a working class person of color. We saw that in Katrina. Sure. Yeah. So I think the lessons of social vulnerability, of questioning intergovernmental capacity to deal with catastrophic events, hmm. um, I sincerely hope that the lessons of COVID are going to be 
developed and carried forward in policy, but I'm not so sure. You know, if we went, if we go back a year from now to, to an ordinary person on the street and ask them how many people died in COVID, mm. what would they say? I hadn't thought about that. Have we learned anything? Can we put, put those lessons into practice? Or will our fractured political system make that impossible? I think this is where people struggle to, even people who have a lot of endurance. I'm talking about researchers and people who are sort of actively trying to suggest policy reform because it's hard to know which part to pick up. I mean, you've sketched out some quite specific areas that could use more research and reform, but then this sort of broader issue of political fracture. I mean, maybe disaster researchers should just work on on that if we knew how to work on that. You know, I mean, I, I struggle with this myself, it, it, that you could do many things much better than we did with COVID in the United States, but it would still have become politicized and, and become partisan. And so I worry about that larger sort of structural problem. You, you can get the, you can get the, maybe some of the more concrete things right. And in, in a country with this very odd moment that we're facing with democracy, maybe it still comes out wrong. It could, it could come out wrong. Um, and I thought it was interesting. I saw a statistic today about one part of the United States, Puerto Rico, which has an 81% vaccination rate, which is better than any, any part of the United States, even New England. And, you know, one of the reasons for that, they say, is that um, the pandemic wasn't politicized. It was seen as a public health issue, period. You didn't have politicians, you know, trying to aggrandize themselves um, by, you know, opposing public health measures. Um, and, you know, it, it is possible, but how do we replicate that in the rest of the United States? Yeah, good, good question, but important, important point to make. And where I'm sitting in South Korea, um, this is a democracy. People disagree about a lot of things here. Multi-party democracy, very robust, coming up on an election. But in the issue of dealing with non-pharmaceutical in interventions, dealing with a vaccine, people, they adopted the technology. There was debate around privacy, all the same kinds of things. It's not like everybody just lined up and did what the government said, but there was a sort of fundamental sort of holding together of the social contract and a trust that scientists working for the government were doing the right thing. And the vaccination rate here is over 86%. And with the Omicron wave sort of in, I hope, cresting here, um, you know, the hospitals are, are not full. The death rate is higher than it's been at any point, but the overall death rate is, is lower than most counties in the United States. 
So that that really does matter. I guess I wonder, I go to all of that to say, can those kinds of models from other countries or from Puerto Rico, even within the United States, do some work or how can they do some work as we go into this next phase of COVID and trying to convince people that there was another way to deal with this in the United States? I think that there needs to be, you know, as we've been suggesting in our conversation, Scott, there needs to be a long-term project in restoring trust in government and trust in institutions. It's almost impossible to envision that something like that could be successful, but it, it has to succeed because these things are so very important. Do people understand what government does for them? Uh, do they understand that government isn't just about politicians, that it's about civil servants who are who dedicated their lives, their careers to making government work better for the people? Um, do they really understand those sorts of things? I feel very pessimistic about it, about these kinds of questions right now, because I think trust has been eroded in our country, in the United States, almost to a point of no return. I hope that isn't true. But sometimes you really wonder, can that be reversed? How long will it take? What will it take? I think these are important questions to ponder, Scott. We're almost out of time. I wanted to just ask you one more question, Kathleen, and it's um, it's one that I think is just really important to addressing your what you were just talking about, which is um, advice to young researchers who are thinking about if they want to get involved in this kind of in this field in disaster research, big tent disaster research. Um, oftentimes, you know, you can ask people. How did you get involved in disaster research? And they generally have a specific reason um, at this particular disaster that impacted them. I think this could be one of those moments where we could see a new generation of disaster researchers. One of the things I always admired about you was your attention to mentorship of young scholars. And so I wanted to ask you this as my last question. What do you say to them? I mean, we've been having a pretty good conversation about many things that are very troubling in COVID and coming out of COVID. But we also need an army of researchers to try to address that, I think. What's your advice to them? Well, there's no better time. There's no better time to get involved in disaster research than now. Um, COVID is generating research questions by the minute, almost by the second. There are so many opportunities to look at what's happening nationally, internationally, globally, what's going on on the policy front, what's going on in the public health front. And then we have the massive challenge of climate change and the massive mitigation, adaptation, preparedness and response challenges associated with that. Disasters are gonna be more frequent, they're gonna be bigger, 
they're going to impact more people. They already are. And there's a pressing need for a disaster research workforce. Now, in order for that work workforce to be able to emerge and development and develop, there needs to be financial support for the next generation of people who want to be involved. Hey, people have to be able to eat. They have to be able to pay their rent. They have to be able to be involved in big research projects that are tackling big questions. And that means an investment in the workforce. It's imperative that that investment be made. So you probably have something to add as well, Scott. I can't say it any better than that. I think oh. that's, that's, and thank you for, for taking on the question. And um, you're, you're absolutely right. This is the right time. This is the best time. There's no better time. Wow. Well, let, me, let me just remind everyone you've been listening to COVID calls and there'll be another COVID calls episode starting just in uh, a few minutes. I'll be talking to Kimberly Bissell and Ji Young Lee about new research on misinformation and social media and vaccines. So that's tying into some of the things I was just talking about with one of my heroes, Kathleen Tierney. Thank you, Kathleen. It's great to talk with you and great to talk with you in this way where we have a couple of years in between our last chat. I wish the, can the pandemic had not stretched out that long, but uh, it was really great to hear from you again and, and wishing you all the best. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. And thank you for having me back, Scott. And this, this retrospective is, um, it, it, it for me is very enlightening. Stay healthy, everyone, and we'll see you next time on COVID Calls. Mm -hmm.